Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Jalon White-Rusom. She's a senior program officer at the Kresge Foundation, and we're going to talk about uh, climate resilience, what's called equitable climate resilience and uh, urban flooding and health. So, uh, Jalon, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm good, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me about your work. It sounds... uh, I guess maybe somewhat unusual, maybe not. What's the the whole background of your work as you're engaged in it right now? Sure, sure. So I work for a a national private foundation uh, that's headquartered in southeastern Michigan, uh, started in, I would say, born and bred in Detroit. And uh, the Kresge Foundation, uh, our mission has been to really expand opportunities in America's cities for low-income communities. And so we try and do that in a couple of different ways. Um, The majority through our grant making, uh, which I sit in our national environment program. And the focus of our grant making is really to help build what we call climate resilient communities and do that in ways that it's grounded in equity. So climate resilience, you'll you'll probably get a lot of definitions, but basically it means uh, reducing the sources of pollution that drive climate change. Uh, adapting to the new normal because of climate change, and then making sure that the people that are impacted the most are a part of the solution set and really building that social cohesion uh, for folks that are trying to to deal with climate change. So um, that is the focus of our program, um, the environment program, where I sit. Okay. And as it relates to, to water issues and then climate change, you're focused on them just in your area or is it all across the U.S.? Like how local is it? Yeah, so um, I've been fortunate to create what's called our Climate Resilient and Equitable Water Systems Initiative, a mouthful, but we basically it's CREWS, so C-R-E-W-S, the CREWS Initiative. And the focus of CREWS is to address climate-driven urban flooding. And so basically that flooding that happens in neighborhoods and homes, uh, on streets, that is the flooding that uh, this initiative and kind of the body of grant making uh, that I lead. And it's really interesting because I guess, you know, a lot of people associate kind of flooding with hurricanes and kind of these huge, huge national disasters and, and folks get it. But really, you know, the, the same level of, I would guess, um, anxiety and disaster and crisis can also come from flooding that happens in neighborhoods. And we're seeing that, I'm sure, in the news and in other places even more frequently now as a lot of communities and cities continue to flood and flood more frequently and the flooding, uh, you know, uh, get more intense, which leads to, of course, not only damage of property, but people having to relocate um, the mental and health effects that comes from flooding 
um, you know, all of that is is why, again, the, you know, we decided to really focus a, a lot of grant making on uh, building more climate resilient systems. Yeah, well, I remember in New Orleans, you know, when the hurricane came, the levees broke, and there was massive flooding there. And I was in New York when, uh, you know, it was a lot smaller, but Hurricane Sandy came, and a lot of people that live right on the shore, their houses were flooded, and then they couldn't get their power meters back on. The city said, no, you need a new meter. And some people had no homes for like a year. Some people just had to abandon their homes and they had insurance problems. So yeah, I can see in a lot of areas, I'm sure it's a massive big deal. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think, I mean, you brought up, a, I mean, there's so many different issues. And I think what makes urban flooding something, I, I think that's becoming more appreciated, but has been underappreciated is, is really the way we solve the problem. Um, it's not just, in my opinion, you know, throwing up a levy or uh, creating, you know, some type of physical infrastructure to hold back the water or contain the water. Um, that's part of the solution set. But I think the, the other critical piece is making sure that, one, we're addressing the social infrastructure problem. And so when a lot of these, like, flood events happen, um, you know, there there's a couple of things going on. One, the physical infrastructure in most of our cities, particularly our older urban cities, it is just old and dilapidated. And you could probably look at any recent study or survey of our physical water infrastructure. And, you know, it's normally graded an F, uh, you know, by, you know, planners and architects and, and folks of that nature. So we know <laughs> there is a huge lack of investment in our physical infrastructure. But I think what has been cool for me and doing grant making in this area and really bringing together a diverse set of, I call solutioneers. So not just the engineers, not just the researchers, but also community-based organizations and advocacy organizations is that you can really create solutions to flooding problems that benefit everybody. And so you're using the science, but you're also creating solutions that provide health benefits, that provide economic benefits, um, that provide uh, opportunities for communities to, to build cohesion. And so we often talk about, you know, in addition to kind of your concrete and pavement, um, green stormwater infrastructure as a solution, because it has all these multiple benefits, um, particularly in areas that have sometimes been ignored, not updated, and where there's little to no water infrastructure. Well, do you deal with access to water and water rights, or you so, do you focus solely on uh, flooding situations? You know, so what's interesting, and, and with most foundations, you have a, kind of a, a, a siloed strategy. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, silos is not the way the world works. <laughs> so while most of my grant making within the CRUISE initiative is focused on climate-driven urban flooding, um, you know, there is this body of work around integrated water management uh, that I am, you know, fully supportive of. And many of our grantee partners work on this integrated water management, which means, you know, I don't care if you're looking at stormwater, wastewater or drinking water. It is all connected inherently because in most cases you might have a utility that that works on all three or a couple that are working, uh, you know, in the same city. And so um, even though most of our support goes towards urban flooding, um, really a lot of the work, I think, supports the broad issues that cut across the silos of the water sector. So, yeah, yeah, super important to access all those pieces. Well, how do you get people to care about 
places that may flood or do flood, like even within a city. Like, so I'm, I'm thinking about the United States. If I'm in Kansas, you know, why would I care about people in New Orleans or New York or coastal areas? And then even if I'm in a city, you know, I don't know if I'm in Louisiana, but I'm inland versus right on the coast or if I'm in a high elevation area that I never see any flooding versus a low one. You know, how do you get me to care or even notice? Because it's not really my problem, let's say, if I live in an area that doesn't affect me. Yeah, I mean, I think that question, Richard, is is a question with the whole, I think folks have asked, like, the whole, for the whole environmental movement in general, one of the questions, like, why do I care if my air is not killing me? <laughs> why do I care if my water is good enough to drink? Why do I care if I'm not living next to a super fund or a toxic waste site? Um, you know, and I'm in my comfortable suburban home. Um, you know, my kids are great. We're healthy, yada, yada, yada. Um, so, I, I mean, I totally get it. And, and oftentimes until something happens or, or until a crisis or something affects you or hits you personally or someone you know, it's easy to kind of put it out of our mind. And so I, I guess for me, when I try and think about uh, when I've had opportunities, particularly when I was uh, lobbying on Capitol Hill in D.C., and I would go into offices that um, I knew uh, really were environment, uh, justice, <laughs> uh, you know, injustice was not a priority. Um, I think it's important to understand who your audience is and, and what their value system is. So, even though, for example, um, you know, I might not have been directly impacted by a flooding event that occurred in Detroit. Um, it could be a family member of mine, which in this case, unfortunately, it has been for the last several years. My parents have been very much directly by flooding, directly impacted by flooding on the east side of Detroit. But also thinking about the, the overall burden that it places on society and our infrastructure. If we continue to have to um, pay, uh, you know, uh, to, to kind of shore up these physical infrastructure systems which aren't doing their job, and that's just on the water side. If we continue to have to shore up our health, public health infrastructure, um, again, because there are communities that are, are more burdened or overburdened by, uh, you know, health issues, um, that is going to cost you eventually. Uh, and then I think just, you know, in terms of just the, the common good and just the moral argument that, uh, you know, this, you know, someone else's fight, you know, is my fight. And so how can I change what I do or my actions that, um, you know, can can make, I mean, it might sound hokey, but really the, the world a better place, the city a better place, my neighborhood a better place. So, you know, I, I think sometimes it's hard to make that case when it's not hitting us personally. But eventually, I, I tell you, I, when I ask this question, when I'm doing speaking engagements, the hands have continued to grow over time of people that have been impacted by some aspect of climate change or some aspect of flooding or some aspect of a health crisis. Um, so I think it's all our duty to do what we can um, just, you know, out of, <laughs> I guess, just sheer uh, you know, um, concern for, you know, the men and women in our society. Well, I've heard that, you know, something will impact people if they can visualize or picture how it will affect them personally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I heard one guy from the insurance in industry say, you know, it's hard to sell a life insurance policy unless someone literally pictures like the hearse in their driveway. That's uh -huh. to be really graphic. Yeah. Um, 
you know, as you were talking, like I imagined the city. So I imagined a waterfront property. That's it, it's probably very expensive. It's really nice. And if that place floods, you know, people may not be sympathetic because they may think like, oh, that person's rich and they're on the water. And, you know, <laughs> then I imagined you know, like people that maybe just live in a really crappy area. Maybe that happens to be a low lying area. There's mm-hmm. no access to water, but they just get hit if it floods. It preferentially pools up there and, you know, and drowns them out. And those people you know, I'd have obviously much more sympathy for. But then again, I don't know. It's just, you know, imagining different people that would be affected by a flood. And depending on who is affected, people either would be sympathetic or not, maybe for different reasons. You know, it's, I don't know, it's all these factors are like going into my head as you're talking. So I'm thinking. Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're totally on it. I mean, you know, the, the, the ramifications for, uh, you know, again, a wealthy person with a waterfront property that happens to, to, to flood, um, you know, most oftentimes, and I won't say all times, you know, that person can either relocate, uh, they can build back. Um, you know, we've seen this in the city of Miami, particularly on Miami Beach, you know, where there's houses, homes, you know, rebuilt on stilts, and they've been rebuilt a couple of times, or the level of the home itself has been raised because they have the financial resources to adapt. And sometimes I would say a not so smart way, but they have these resources to adapt. So the impact of a flood, you know, might be, you know, a little bit of resource strain or consumption. But when you think about other communities in Miami that have been uh, forced to live, I would say, in lower lying areas with little to no water infrastructure that continue to uh, experience what they call sunny day flooding, um, you know, the, the, the situation is a little bit different because, again, you, you might not have another home to go to. Um, you might not have the resources to, again, make those adaptations, those physical adaptations to your home. And then, you know, again, uh, what's interesting in some cases, which seems, you know, really weird, but, you know, some of the properties um, that, you know, were kind of deemed to be, you know, properties where lower income communities or communities of color or immigrants, uh, you know, kind of owned land and homes are now actually, even though they're being flooded out, you know, and these folks are being forced to move, they're now being gentrified and that these, you know, again, more wealthier people that maybe have more money, more resources are now coming in and trying to buy up these spaces. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting dynamic in that um, <laughs> a lot of folks, uh, particularly low-income communities and some communities of color, uh, were forced to live in these areas due to redlining and other political practices decades and decades ago. Um, and it was intentional uh, not to have the infrastructure there, uh, you know, just all sorts of environmental insults. And, and so now as our climate continues to change, um, you know, people are in an even worse situation, um, which is, you know, what you, again, you mentioned, we witness in New Orleans and um, what we witness in many cities, unfortunately, across this country. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I can picture if I live right on the water, you know, climate change may cause, for instance, rising sea level, and then it encourages on my property and eventually gets me. But how does climate change affect people that are, you know, in these in these areas and low lying depressions or other like specifically what what's happened? Is it just more storms that get to them? Uh, you know, what else? What's going on? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'll give the example of my parents. Uh, so basically, they have a home on the east side of Detroit um, that is actually uh, near a dock. And so um, Detroit borders a city called Gross Point, which is, I would say, super duper affluent. Um, and when it floods, they have created a wall that's supposed to prevent the water coming from coming from this dock to go over the wall into the neighborhood where my mom lives. But that has been breached multiple times. And so, you know, again, you not only have the breach happening, but the flooding gets into your basement and you think, okay, well, this is just one time. So you pay someone to come suck the water out. Um, but then it happens again and you've just repurchased appliances or redone your carpet. And again, you're losing stuff and money, you know, stuff that that's, you know, not cheap to replace. But then you find out a year later that even when you had that cleanup, you're starting to, you know, have issues with your breathing. You know, it's like it, it in, you know, it's, it's like your asthma and any allergies are being triggered. And so you find that there has been mold and other things that have now gotten into the air and the ventilation system because of the flooding that happened a year ago uh, that, again, it wasn't properly remediated. And so it's like, okay. And then, you know, you try and reach out to, you know, the folks that are supposed to (laughs) provide protection, Um, the city in some cases, you know, supposed to provide proper protection. barriers or, or, or whatever to make sure that these things, you know, hold when the waters rise. And, and basically the community that, that my mom is in is, you know, they were kind of like, I would say not blamed, but basically it was, oh, well, that's your problem. And it's not our problem talking about the city. And so you try and again, work with the city that's not working with you um, because this is, ex- this, I mean, it's, it's a lot of expenses and it's multiple flooding multiple times. And then you have these health concerns that are raising up. Um, again, and it, it particularly becomes a challenge when you have pre-existing health conditions that are exacerbated by the flooding and the air that you're now breathing in. And then when you try and even get insurance companies to come and assess, I mean, assurance that you, you know, you've been paying for, and they make it super, super difficult for you to file a claim um, and, and get any, you know, funds or resources to try and rebuild, rebuild back your life in, in some semblance of a decent amount of time. It's that compilation of stuff that, you know, makes flooding a nightmare in, in many ways. And that is just one story. Um, but there are many stories across this country Um, In fact, there's an organization we support called the Anthropocene Anthropocene Alliance, and it's basically about 90 flood survivor groups, literally called flood survivor groups across the country. And what they do is really fight, you know, again, for folks in their particular cities to acknowledge that, you know, this is not right, (laughs) it's not acceptable, flooding is a public health hazard, and there are things that, you know, we need to do about it. So, um, yeah, this is a huge issue. It's going to continue to be a huge issue and something that we can't ignore. Well, again, I'm not trying to be difficult, but if if I don't live in that area that, you know, East Detroit that was flooded, if I live in Gross Point or if I live somewhere else, you know, and you tell me about this issue, what have you observed will typically be like a response if someone's not in that area? And how do you 
how do you get their help or their buy-in? What do you say to them? Yeah, I mean, you know, that is that is a, a critical issue everywhere. And, you know, I would say, to your point, um, the people that you would need to convince are the, the leaders, uh, the folks that can make decisions. Um, so when I talk, you know, to, you know, my, my grantee partners and even, you know, family and, and colleagues that are trying to, I would say, um, <laughs> get the attention or the ear of those that can begin to make change, whether it's in policy or resource deployment, is that, you know, focus on, you know, again, the people that, you know, have that power. And even if they don't get it, there are ways to to really make them understand. So um, I would be less concerned with, again, uh, you know, if I was in this situation trying to convince, you know, maybe someone in the suburbs or some other place that that hasn't been touched by, you know, the, the water or flooding, uh, that this is an important problem. Because again, you know, I think people, you know, sometimes have to experience or feel it to appreciate it. Or some people actually care about the struggles of others. But, you know, I would say, and what I tell folks is that who are the folks that really need to understand why this is an issue and a problem? Some people you're going to be able to convince and change. Some people you're not. So your job is to plant the seeds as much as you can in different places, but really focus on those folks that it is their responsibility you know, they're either getting paid to serve, um, they have been voted in, or this is their duty as a municipal office to manage these situations. Like that, that those are the people that you focus on. And you, again, go through the, the you know, the, the normal chain of command. But if folks don't listen, or they're ignoring you, then that's where you, you have to use some different tactics and strategies. Um, so I, you know, again, I think, um, you know, beating folks over the head with different issues has never worked, but there is a responsibility and level of accountability that the folks that we vote and that we pay to serve us in whatever community, they can't ignore it. And, um, I think there have been so many, you know, examples of how, communities, regular people, moms, grandmas, anybody continue to to rise up and make their voices heard on flooding, health, and many, many other issues. So what are some of the cool ideas that solutioneers have come up with that you you provided grant money towards? Yeah, so I'll I guess I'll, I'll I mean so many different things, but you know, as you were, you know, asking that question about how do you kind of <laughs> convince people to care? I was thinking about a group that we support in Atlanta, and really it's a it's a group of groups in Atlanta, but I'll specifically talk about EcoAction, um, small community-based organization, but they have, I would say, a big heart and a big reach because they have been creating with the help of other partners like American Rivers, which is a national um, non-governmental organization and others, this Atlanta water learning, um, watershed learning network. And really the purpose of this network is to not only educate community members in kind of what they can ask for, what they should expect in terms of, you know, kind of the water infrastructure and other amenities in their communities, but it's also an opportunity to create a table 
where the city leaders and the municipal leaders and those folks that make decisions can come and sit and learn from communities as well. And so I think with most of these kind of solutions, um, a lot of them are not rocket science. It is literally, I think, one, being able to sit and listen, two, being able to have a conversation, um, three, making sure that uh, there is as much emphasis on what the community brings to the table as much as uh, the, the government officials or folks you know, in positions of power are bringing to the table. And so that is, I think, the beauty of collaboration. And um, that doesn't happen a lot <laughs> where you have, you know, utility leaders and communities coming together to really kind of co-create a set of solutions. And I think that is just really cool. And there's many models, you know, within the, the grants, uh, the grantees and the cruise initiative uh, that are using that type of, um, I guess, learning to action environment. Well, what have you noticed works in terms of convincing people, you know, do you stratify people, you know, there's ones that are directly affected, which you would hope it's easy to convince them. Then there's ones that know people that are directly affected, like, you know, your parents. And then there's people that just, you know, have no relationship at all with the people affected. Um, yeah. Do you think about your outreach in those terms and do you focus just on the easier ones, the low-hanging fruit, or, you know, what's what have you noticed in those different groups of people and how you have to convince them? Yeah, so I'll, I'll share an example. Again, it's this, <laughs> I would say, this kind of collaborative learning table style. Um, you know, an organization we support called the U.S. Water Alliance um, has historically been a place where utilities from across the country come together um, to learn. Um, you know, again, the water sector has, you know, historically and still is in most cases, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, white, male dominated, um, you know, just that's the way it's been. And so about four years, yeah, I guess it's been four years ago when I started at the Kresge Foundation um, and I was really looking to figure out, you know, who could be potential partners. I knew that one of the, the key folks that we needed to get into this conversation to better understand climate change and to better understand why equity is important in decision making was we had to have water utilities at the table. And so at the same time, the U.S. Water Alliance was coming into new leadership and their current CEO, Radhika Fox, uh, we, we had a conversation and, and really dreamed up some things. And a couple of those dreams have manifested themselves into uh, learning tables. So one specifically around climate, water, and equity, and one focused on water equity. And so what these tables brought together was literally teams of cities. So I think we had about six to nine different cities that came together over a two-year period. And these teams included the water utility director, maybe a local or community foundation, community-based or environmental justice organizations, a local environmental NGO, sometimes someone from economic development or things of that nature. Like these tables, it was at least seven to eight people per city that committed to coming together uh, over two years to create a roadmap. And these roadmaps, uh, which they called equity roadmaps, uh, addressed you know, several issues related to the water sector. But I think what I learned 
from kind of watching that process happen from afar over the last couple of years is that one, it is so important for people to understand where you're coming from. For example, you'll have community members that say, well, why can't they do this? Or why can't this utility, you know, reduce our rate or yada, yada, yada. But then the utility will say, well, you know, they, you know, this is why we can't do it. This is the constraints we have. It's actually a statute that we would need to change and yada, yada, yada. And so, you know, again, where there have been existing tensions, I think in many cases, there was no communication. And so what I think is super important when you're trying to create really, really <laughs> robust solutions is that people have to understand where you're coming from and, and understand your perspective. And, and oftentimes, most people, in my belief, are, you know, aren't intentionally trying to harm. In some cases, they are. But most of the time, you know, people actually care about each other. And, you know, they just don't really understand why this particular community member might be so fired up or passionate, because now this table has created a space for them to hear their story, to hear why green stormwater infrastructure and job creation is so important. You know, put a, put a face to an issue and that it's not just, you know, the policy issue that I talk about in my, you know, conference room back at the office. So I think one of the things that, that I've learned is the importance of understanding the perspective and the experience that everybody brings and how that is super valuable um, in creating a solution that, you know, everybody can, can live with. Um, I also think it's super important and necessary to address the underlying institutional and structural racism that exists, not only in the water sector, but across different sectors. Um, you know, even in philanthropy, I mean, I could, you know, science, research, whatever. I mean, there are just ways of doing things that have existed on and on and on and on that have never been questioned and that, um, you know, really need to be questioned and need to be changed. Um, and, and while there are some structures that are in place that, again, haven't been created to intentionally hurt people, um, there's some structures that, that are hurting people. And so, I think until we begin to ask the questions as to why we have this process or why we have this procedure or why do we have this policy or why are we only, you know, seeing state revolving funds for, you know, water infrastructure deployed to this particular city when we know that there's a need in 10 other cities in the state. The, the opportunity to uproot some of these practices that have been detrimental to populations, I think, is, is something that, ha that continues to come up, not only in this kind of learning table over the last two years, but in all aspects of, you know, uh, the work around water and public health. Yeah, uh, last question. Is there a, a favorite example you have of an intervention or a solution, again, by a solutioneer that, that did make a change and improved a community's uh, protection against flooding? Any good stories? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of good stories, but I'm, I'm trying to think of one that kind of embodies, you know, a lot of different things. Um, and I, and I, you know, and I'll probably, boy, I guess maybe um, I'll, I'll go back to uh, Anthropocene Alliance, the, the organization that I, that I chatted about earlier. Um, and I hope I'm getting the community right there. One of the things that I think is is really neat about how Anthropocene Alliance does their work is that, again, they have these 
flood survivor groups. And again, these are the way the, the executive director and founder describes it, you know, you know, regular folks kind of, you know, most of the groups are not, you know, 501c3s. I mean, just folks that have come together um, because they're just tired of being flooded out and tired of being forgotten about. And, you know, one of the things that I find so inspirational is that Anthropocene has made a a partnership happen with American Geophysical Union, uh, AGU. And there's this um, aspect of AGU called the Thriving Earth Exchange. And what they do, and in my words, is provide scientists and technical support pro bono to, you know, nonprofit organizations. And so I think what has been so cool, and, you know, I can't think of a specific example, but I know of two where these scientists from AGU have worked with a couple of groups, you know, a couple of the 80 groups in Anthropocene Alliance and provided testimony, provided research or data to help them build the case um, to create change in their communities. And so, you know, I'm thinking of, of one particular situation in, uh, I want to say Mississippi, um, with a group called ECHO, where, you know, one of the scientists, you know, and a lawyer provided some pro bono support, um, a couple of communities in Chicago. Um, so I just really feel like that collaboration um, between scientists that care and want to use their science for good and apply it um, to actual problems and issues that communities are struggling with right now. Um, I think that is just a beautiful model of, of how we need to think about our use of science, but also the service of science and, and how it can really change people's lives like now. So um, yeah, I, that is truly inspirational to me as, as someone who has always loved science since being a little girl and, and really um, fascinated with the way we have an opportunity to make science even more powerful. Very great. Uh, so, John, what's the best way for people to find out more about these initiatives and to uh, you know, see how they can participate, whether they've been affected directly or know someone who has or you know, that's important to them? How do they get in touch? Yeah, sure. So I would encourage folks to, you know, definitely reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn or, or Instagram. Um, I'm just, you can find me by my name. Or you can definitely go to our website at Kresge, so www.kresge, K-R-E-S-G-E.org, and search for the CRUISE initiative, so C-R-E-W-S initiative, and that will give you a a gist of some of our partners. And uh, again, folks are always looking um, to work together and help each other, um, so I would love to be supportive in any way. Well, very good. John, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. 